You're in 1 John chapter 2. We are stepping through this little letter, a letter that is little perhaps in length, but it is full of meaning and truth for us right where we are. Uh, And uh, this is part number three. We've been going through and just taking our time, and tonight we're going to continue that as I wanted to just focus on those first two verses of chapter number two. Um, But what I hope is very apparent as we've been going through the last couple weeks is that as John is writing this particular letter, he's writing with a strong, if I can say this, strong dose of certainty and conviction about what he's writing about and what he's hoping to dispel. Uh, As we've noted in the last couple of weeks, John is writing basically with the premise that he's, again, proving for the sake of the church and its health and the, and the belief of those who make up the churches here, the fact of Jesus' identity as the Son of God come in the flesh. Notice chapter number 5 and verse number 13. A verse we've pointed out, a verse which ought to be very familiar to you and hopefully will be at the end of this series. As he says in verse number 13 of chapter 5, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, which, as we've pointed out already, is almost a, uh, not, it's not verbatim, but it is a very much a similar quote as in John chapter 20, his gospel, chapter 20, verse 31, which is basically the same premise. All of these writings that John here presents to us are, again, concerned with bringing to bear this wonderful truth that that which is from the beginning, as he says in verse 1 of 1 John, is the same word that took on flesh for us, as he talks about so eloquently in his gospel. And for John, this is a message, as is going to be proven, I think, throughout the rest of this letter, the idea, that wonderful doctrine that we hold, that Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the Son of God come as a man, a man who is perfect, a man who is tempted like as we are, yet without sin. That message is not just some philosophical idea. It's not just some uh, truth that you know some church expert would love to talk about and debate about and, 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 and argue about in and, and highbrow uh, sort of circles. This message was supremely, yes, theological, but it was also supremely and inherently practical, as John, I think, is going to prove very well here throughout this letter, stating and believing that Jesus is the Christ of God changes everything. I think that's why he positions it uh, here at the beginning of his letter, because this is the foundation of what he believes, of what the church believes, of everything that the church does. It comes out of this very formative point of belief that we know who Jesus is. He's the Son of God come for sinners And I think that's the reason both this letter and the gospel start with essentially the same prologue. Because everything he was about to say springs from this source. And everything that the Christian is springs from these facts. The facts of Jesus' incarnation. Right after, uh, just by way of example, notice right after this prologue in this letter of 1 John. Notice verse 5 where he says, this 
is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Right after this very foundational sort of uh, uh, declaration of who Jesus is and where this message about who Jesus is has come from. Namely, Jesus himself. He thrusts himself right into the meat of what it means that this is what we believe. He immediately gets into the Christian's walk. If you say you believe in God and yet you're walking in darkness, you're lying. You're not even talking the truth. And as we examined last week, fundamental to this gospel is this wonderful idea that God, the creator, desires fellowship and relationship with his creatures. That's why several times throughout these, uh, in this first chapter, he talks about that idea of fellowship, this idea of nearness. And then we have that wonderful question that perhaps pops in our minds as he says, God is light. How can we who are trapped in darkness and sin have fellowship with this one who is light, who is everything pure and holy and righteous? Well, he answers that again for us in verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in light, we have fellowship, partnership, association with one another. And the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. There it is. The son of God, the one who came from that place of glorious light, came into our world of darkness, never sinning, always living a perfect life and perfectly dying for those who are sin in sin, shedding that perfect blood for we who are in darkness. And this is what brings us near. That's what brings us close. We are brought into this fellowship with the Father because of this wonderful blood that Jesus has shed on our behalf. And likewise, now we can be in fellowship with one another. Again, notice verse 3 of the same chapter. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. This is why he's writing. It's all connected. It's all deriving out of this wonderful truth. And included in this announcement, as we've already noted, is this, yes, there's this announcement of nearness, this announcement of fellowship that God has come down to once again reinstitute, to, yes, redeem that fellowship that was broken at the garden. But also within this, as we've already noted, is this announcement of separation. Again, notice verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That's nonsensical. Basically, as we noted last week, it's nonsensical to claim association with the one who is pure light while we are walking in darkness. Those two things cannot mix. It's like oil and water. They will never mix together. And I think, as we've been noting, this is something that John is looking to sort of uh, deconstruct uh, by uh, some of the sentiments that were around in his day. And again, as 
we've, we've said before that there was this man, Serenthus, who was perhaps the, the linchpin of this letter. He was the one that sort of motivated John to write much of this. This man, Serenthus, was a learned scholar who was no, mostly known nowadays for his heresies, the, this idea that Jesus and God were two separate uh, beings and two separate figures and all of such things. But this was this here, I think, in verse number six, this idea of the fellowship between darkness and light is something that was also inherent within what much of what Serenthus was sort of uh, promoting and postulating, which is just this idea of Gnosticism. They perhaps wouldn't have called it Gnosticism in that day, but what we know now as what this idea of superior knowledge through all of this spiritual insight and even in some senses mysticism is known as this uh, Gnostic belief. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, of course, which just means knowledge of spiritual mysteries is what this idea means. And those who had adhered to this sort of belief system, they were basically saying and claiming that in order to have an, an experience and receive true, quote-unquote, true salvation, you had to acquire it through all of these experiences, these quests of spiritual insight, of higher spiritual and superior knowledge. That's what the Gnostics claimed, that they had something that they had experienced that had given them true illumination, so to speak, and true spirituality. It wasn't found in just the word. You see, most of the Gnostics denied this idea of the spirituality of material things. How could these things that are material have, in some senses, eternal worth and value? And so, therefore, they were everywhere trying to seek out these very mystical ideas of spiritual insight and foresight, even. And some Gnostics even maintained that to get this higher spiritual knowledge... That included they had to get a knowledge of sin too. Because you had to have a knowledge of what you were sort of fighting against. Therefore, one had to know what sin was in order to attain that higher plane of intellect and insights and spirituality. So essentially what they were trying to say and postulate is that you had to have a knowledge of those things of darkness in order to know what the true light was. Or we could say... They wanted to try out sin in order to know what the truth was. You had to dabble in it a little bit because that was part of the process of attaining this higher spiritual insight. And John makes it clear, that's not the truth. Light has nothing to do with darkness, John says. You don't have to try it out. You don't have to test the waters. Again, as he says, if we say we belong to the light... Our lives ought to match that assertion. Our lives ought to live up to what we are saying we believe. Otherwise, as he says, we are liars and we don't really know the truth. Or as he says in verse 10, the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, he says, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So you see already he's making this idea very clear that there's a separation that occurs between those who are walking in the light and those who are walking in the darkness. The two cannot be mixed. If you say you are walking with Jesus, you cannot likewise be walking in darkness either. But this leaves us with a curious, I think, question, especially for 
believers, we might say, on the ground in, in sort of real life? A question that we could word like this, but what happens when we do? What happens when we do sin? If this is sort of the ideal, that yes, as John is writing, he is writing so that no one sins, that I'm writing so that you may not sin, as he says. But what happens when we do? What happens when someone says, I believe in Jesus' blood, I believe in all these things, and they begin walking in the light, and then they find themselves sort of slipping and veering off into the darkness again. What do we do then? What's the Christians, what's the church's answer? I think John gives it to us here in our text in chapter number 2. Notice as he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John, you see, he wasn't ignorant. He wasn't sort of unlearned to what life, quote-unquote, under the sun looks like and how it operates. John, by this time, is a very aged man. He's upwards in age, probably around the age of 90 or 80, around that age. He's an older apostle. He's, we could, if you could use the turn of phrase, he's been around the block. He's seen a thing or two. He knows how the Christian life operates by this point. And he is a very wise and learned apostle and pastor. And he knows that sin is not unavoidable. It's part and parcel with living under the sun. He's not claiming something different when he says, I'm teaching you things so that you may not sin. He knows that that's going to happen. He's teaching you the way in which you are brought out of sin's stranglehold. Yes, he's writing that. But the point of the gospel, as he says, is that you may not sin. So how does the gospel tell us the way to not sin? And likewise, the question is, what hope does the gospel offer to those who do Well, the answer is the same. The answer to both questions is the same as he says in verse 1. The answer to those who want to say, I want to not sin anymore. And the answer to the question is, what happens if I do? Well, verse number 1, we have an advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous. With these words, those wonderful words that we have an advocate, John here, I think, brings that hope that he's been talking about and that very, we might say, theological truth that Jesus takes on flesh and comes amongst us as in the incarnation. He brings that into everyday life. Because, you see, after explaining What is the ideal trajectory of life as a Christian that we're walking in the light? He now explains to lightened sinners, if you will, how they are to continue. How do you keep walking even after you fail, even after you slip into darkness? If anyone does sin, when you do sin, you look to heaven. Because that's where your advocate is. And likewise, if you want to learn how to not sin, you look to heaven. Because that's where your advocate is. 
He's saying and giving the same relief, the same gospel to both individuals. Those in the church who have, are stinking of sin and those in the church who are struggling with the persistent sins. And he's saying to all, one and all, your hope is your advocate. The Greek word here is awesome. It's that word that appears in the rest of John's writings. Parakletos, or counselor, or intercessor. It's an advocate is one who pleads the cause of another. It's one who comes alongside those who are in dire and desperate straits. And they plead their cause, offering comfort and hope and peace. The same word, by the way, that John uses in his gospel to describe the ministry of Jesus' spirit in John 14, and John 15, and John 16. Those chapters, remember when Jesus is, is, well, let's look at a couple of them. John chapter 14, I'll read that one. John chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus is talking to his apostles in the hours before he departs, before all of the horror of the cross appears before their eyes. John 14, verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am with you, but the helper the parakletos, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He says the same thing in chapter 15, verse 26, the same thing in chapter 16, verse 7, talking about this advocate, this intercessor and counselor, this comforter who is going to come and speak these words of peace to his apostles. And through this, I think we're made to see something truly amazing. The idea that we have this dual ministry of advocacy, both on the part of the Spirit and the Son of God. That while we are here walking on this earth, while we're living the Christian life, while we're walking in the light and, and, and by the grace of God, walking in the Spirit... The Spirit is advocating for our comfort and peace by ministering the work of God's Son to us. That's his ministry of advocacy. All the while, he's leading us in the way that we ought to go. And he can do this. He does this. This is part of the Holy Spirit's ministry to minister the work of the Son precisely because the Son is in glory standing before the Father. That's the image of 1 John 2 verse 1. This idea of Jesus the advocate. He is in the glory, the glorious presence of the Father advocating on our behalf as our righteous representative. They're both working in tandem. Both the Son and the Spirit. Ministering the same thing on our behalf. And what's that thing? Verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only. But also for the sins of the whole world. This is the ministry of advocacy. That God's son and God's spirit are ever ministering to the likes of you. And to the likes of me. To every cleansed sinner. Yes, John is writing to believers. He's writing to Christians, as he says in John chapter 5, to those who believe in Jesus. I'm writing these things so that you may know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have eternal life already. He's writing to them as they are traversing through this life. And they're getting into ditches. They're getting into spiritual ruts. 
They're getting into those seasons of life when they would rather not gather. They would rather not enter into fellowship and worship with fellow believers because of something that someone said or something that someone did. Or perhaps some sin in their own life. He's right at them and he says, this, this is your advocate. Christ's Holy Spirit comes to our side to remind us precisely where our salvation is found. He comes to our side and reminds us that look at what Jesus has done. He is your propitiation. He is the one who has paid for your sins in full. And likewise, when lightened sinners, cleansed sinners find their way into the dark again, who is on our behalf standing as our representative? None other than Christ the Son. And he assures us that our relationship with the Father is undisturbed. And this is the great point I think that John is here making. I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin, but if you do, you have one who stands on your behalf, who assures you, even now, in your sort of failing of faith, in your failure, it, you are given the great news that your fellowship with God cannot be undone. This is a marvel. Your relationship with the Father cannot be uh, removed from off of you. It can't be disconnected. Because of what the Spirit and the Son minister to us. And because of what they advocate on our behalf. I like how H.A. Ironside, that great preacher, he says this on this particular text. Sin does not, question, does not touch the question of relationship. But it does touch the question of communion. Our blessed Lord is in the presence of God the Father to plead for his people. And as a result of his advocacy, we are brought to repent and confess. And he graciously restores our souls. This is the great hope that we have in the gospel. That regardless of our sin and our failure. Regardless of those places in which we are made to see that we're stepping into darkness again. There is one who stands forever in our place between us and the Father. Securing our standing. It's that great verse in Colossians. We who are brought near in Jesus are in his shadow. Colossians 3. Ironside continues. He says, quote, I realize my unrighteousness when I fall into sin and may well give up in despair. But I see I have there in the presence of the Father the absolutely righteous one to give me a perfect representation. And God sees me in him. So I plead not my own righteousness, but that of God as manifested in Christ. And you see, I can plead with power. I can plead with efficacy because he has actually died for the very sin that is now troubling me. Wow. This is the gospel at work. We see ourselves. We see the unrighteousness in our own lives and the things that we should not do and the, th and the words that we should not say and the thoughts that we should not think. And yet we might very well give up because of such despairing sins. And who comes along to minister to us? Christ's spirit. And what does he minister? Christ's work. 
And what is Christ's work? That we who are brought nigh in him and his blood can never be shunned again, never be shuffled off back into the darkness. Who Jesus has brought close, they are never again turned away. What a ministry of peace and comfort that we have through our advocate. That we who are brought nigh are there forever. And that's the great meaning of that word propitiation. Again, another great word that John is using that doesn't often get used in our vocabulary. But it literally just means atoning sacrifice. And this, again, is hinting at what Jesus did on the cross. He made propitiation. He made payment. He made atonement for our sins by shedding his own blood. And that was the necessary payment for all the wrongs that we have done. For all the wrongs of the world. And now you see the great hope that we have in Jesus See, the freedom of the gospel isn't the freedom to go out and sin. It's the freedom to say, when it does occur, you have an advocate. It's that idea. Grace is not a license to sin. It's a license to repent. It's the freedom to know that when you come to the Father through the ministry of the Spirit, because He reminds you of your sin, you are brought to that place and you're brought to your knees and you're reminded that, yes, there is one who stands in my stead. So when you repent of your sins, you know that you are forgiven. As He says in verse 9 of the previous chapter, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because we have an advocate. Because we have an advocate who is forever pointing back to His perfect propitiation on the cross. He says, that blood is enough to cover all sins. From now and forever. 2,000 years ago. Your savior paid for the sins. You haven't even committed yet. Mind blowing thought of the gospel. His blood was so powerful. His sacrifice was so life giving. And so transformative. That the sins you haven't even committed yet. Are covered under his blood. And that's why we can have confidence when we confess our sins to Christ alone. Because his propitiation is final and forever. One commentator puts it like this. That holy and precious blood of Christ alone brings us poor sinners into fellowship with God and keeps us there. Oh, that's the hope of it is finished. When we're brought close, we're there forever. And yes, sometimes we we screw up. We mess up. I'm writing this to you don't sin, but when you do, you have an advocate, John is saying. When Jesus said those words in the, in the time of his passion and death, it is finished. Jesus was assuring the whole world, even you and I and people that we hope to bring to salvation, even yet still, he's assuring them that nothing more needs to be done in order for them to be made God's sons and daughters. He's done it all. It's just for them to repent and believe And that's the ministry that we have of Jesus' advocacy because he's ever standing in our place. He is the intercessor forever, standing in that place before the bar of God, showing him his own scars, the the places in his hands where he was pierced for our sins. 
And it's a delight to do so. It's his delight to take up our case at the moment of our sin. And when he does, he pleads on our behalf, showing God the Father his sacrifice. And then he applies that sacrifice to our lives by the work of his spirit. This is the wonderful hope and truth of, we could say, the gospel on the ground. All of those blessed things that Jesus has done, they apply to our everyday lives. Meaning that all the times we fail and we fall, and it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. When you do, you have an advocate. Good news. Greatest news of all. And every time we were reminded of our advocate, what are we reminded of? We're reminded of that place, as that great song says, where every failure disappears. We're reminded of the cross. See, that's the great and life-giving truth of the ministry of God's Spirit and Son. They're ever bringing us back to that place where we first found our life, if you can say, in the very first place, at the cross. At the cross. <laughs> Where Jesus died and my sins were rolled away. That's the place of our hope. That's the place of our life. And every single time we sin, the Spirit brings us back to that place and shows us what the sin did. And the Son is in glory, reminding the Father what He did. And therefore, in all facets, we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit evidencing to you and I that we are His children, period. What a great and blessed truth. As John is writing, as you remember, he's writing in chapter 5, verse 13, so that you may know you have eternal life. This is how. This is why. Because we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And in his righteousness, we stand. We don't have to cower in fear. We don't have to shrink. We stand. As Paul says in Romans chapter 5, that we are standing in that spot of being justified, of being declared righteous because of what the Savior did. And guess what? That's how we are made to live the Christian life. Through the ministry, the continual ministry of going back to the cross, going back to that site where all our sins were put on the sun and they were left behind in his grave. And as he's going to get into, this is, this is where all of the Christian life springs out. It springs out of this blessed truth. And this is why it's so important to look at Scripture in the way I think the Spirit intended. We cannot get all of the, we could say, the outward sort of images of Christian living unless first we get the inward correct. You can't put the fruit unless there's a seed planted. It would be one thing if John was just prescribing the fruit of the Spirit. But oftentimes, you know what we mistake? It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not our fruit that we're bearing. It's the Spirit's fruit in us as he works on us to work us and shape us and fashion us into the image of God's Son. That's what he's doing. It's one thing to go out and try and be kinder. But it's one thing to be made more kind as the Spirit works the truth of the Son in our hearts and souls and minds. And that's the work of the gospel. 
That's the work that lasts. That's the work that produces, yes, true fruit. As the Spirit is constantly bringing us back to the place of Jesus' victory over sin and death and hell and the grave. And again, that's what he's going to get into in the rest of John. Everything comes back to this point, this point of advocacy on our behalf, which is the work of the Son, the work of the Spirit in our place, in our stead. This is the gospel on the ground for the likes of you and I, for guilty sinners. That guilt rolls away because of what the Son does and what the Spirit says. Thank God. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes in a word of prayer.